chapter 6, 1 through 7. We're on the same page now. All right. I'm going to read the text, and we'll pray and jump into the sermon. Acts chapter 6 reads like this. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sunday morning, Lord, just asking us that asking that you would meet us anew today. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning as the dew on the fields. We can count on it. It is sure you are steadfast and you never change. And it is your delight to give your people the kingdom. I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts this morning a bit to catch more of a glimpse of your glory in this brief time that we have in your word. Guard me from error, Lord. Let not me be seen, but only Christ. Draw us all closer to you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is the earliest movie you remember watching as a child? Can you think back? Is there any movie in particular when, when you really think about it, you remember, oh yeah, I remember when I sat down and watched movie X, and I remember this part of the movie, I remember what I was doing when I was watching that. I asked myself that question earlier this week as I watched my daughters, three and one, sit down for the umpteenth time to watch Princess and the Frog. And then I sat down, sat there watching them, just thinking, are they going to remember any of this? Are they going to remember how much their daddy loved them and allowing them to watch this movie again and again and again? I hope so. But the earliest memory I have was, one of the earliest memories was when I was four years old. I remember watching the movie Disney's Fantasia. Do you all remember that? I don't remember everything that happened in the movie, but I do remember one of the short silent films with Mickey Mouse, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. And it was about Mickey Mouse. He was the apprentice of a sorcerer, and his master had commanded him to fetch water out of the cistern to fill a cauldron with buckets of water. 
And Mickey devises a plan that he's going to dabble a bit in the sorcerer's uh, magic to accomplish this task much easier. So the scene opens up. You know, Mickey is walking around carrying these heavy buckets, laboring. He stumbles across his master, practicing a bit of divination, conjuring up this spirit out of a cauldron. Quickly, though, the master grows tired. He stops his practicing, and he exits the room up a flight of stairs. Mickey begins his plan. He notices that the master leaves his hat there on the wooden table, his sorcerer's hat that has all of his magic supposedly in it. Mickey excitedly runs over to the hat and places it on his head and and begins his, his scheme. He sees a broom leaning against the stone wall, and he begins lunging. I see some nods. I know some of you are with me. You didn't remember it at first, but you're with me now. He begins lunging at the broom, flittering his fingers, trying to get the broom to come to life. He inches closer and closer, trying to bring it to life. Finally, the broom springs into action. Then Mickey begins these over-exaggerated pulls, trying to get the broom to come closer to him to pick up these buckets of water. He gets the broom to come over, pick up the buckets, and he begins leading the the, uh, broom around to the cistern to try to fetch water for the cauldron. Everything's happening according to plan. He's very pleased with himself such that he falls asleep and allows the whole system to go on on autopilot. He's jolted awake to find himself slipping under a flood of water. Apparently, as he was sleeping, the broom kept fetching water and dumping water into the cauldron way past the point of being full. The water was spilling out, flooding the whole cellar. Mickey runs and tries to get the broom to stop, but realizes he's, he's forgotten the, the spell to reverse the whole order, and he can't do anything to stop it. So he grabs this axe and, and hacks this broom to pieces in like a violent scene, like a murderous scene that you would never be allowed to show today. That's why the movie's great. He goes over there, hacks it to pieces, and he believes that he's, he's fixed the situation. To his surprise, though, all these small fragments of broom all spring up and they become individual brooms, all carrying their buckets and fetching more and more and more water. And it seems like in every scene there are more and more and more brooms standing up and and fetching water and the situation is chaos. There's too many brooms for Mickey to be able to handle alone. And it's not until his master comes in that he remedies the situation and causes all the brooms to stop and the water to flee. Now, I know at your point you're wondering, what on earth does this have to do with the Bible? I'm going to try to get there. Not a lot, but I'm going to try to get there. It's the scene in particular of all these brooms, these, these many fragments of broom that originally Mickey seems to be in control of the situation, but as these brooms increase in number and multiply and multiply and multiply. There are too many brooms for Mickey to be able to handle alone. He needs help. He needs some support. And by the time we get to where we're at now in the book of Acts, that scene, that element at least, is at play in the book of Acts. You may remember at the beginning of the book, this is the story of of God's gospel beginning to go out to the ends of the earth, starting with His Spirit being poured out on believers at Pentecost. People are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mighty deeds of God proclaimed for the first time in, in languages that they never would have dreamed they would have heard or even been able to speak. Something supernatural is happening. 
And it begins with just 120 believers gathering in a room, praying for the Spirit to come. When the Spirit falls, it's some 3,000 believers are added to the church in chapter 2. Over in chapter 4, we're, we're told that the number of men alone is up to 5,000. By the time we get to this place in, in Acts chapter 6, we're no longer given the number of believers that are there in the church. It's just grown to such an exponential degree that it just says that more were being added, and more were being added, and more were being added. That's what we see at the beginning of Acts uh, 6 1, when it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, it doesn't tell us what the number is, it just says that God continued to move. What we see today is that as that as just as Mickey was overwhelmed by the sheer number of brooms, as the church continues to grow, the apostles realize that they need more hands on deck to to facilitate all that God is doing in his church. More more leaders need to be risen in the church and and more hands on deck, more support to facilitate all that God desires to do. And it's that point that, that leads to the title for today's sermon. The title is this, The Need for Spirit Liberating Structure in the Church. The Need for Spirit Liberating Structure in the Church. I chose that title deliberately because Many people are tempted to one of two extremes when they think of how the church is organized and, and what the church ought to look like. On the one hand, they might be tempted to think, well, these people will overemphasize the role of the Holy Spirit and undervalue the need for any type of system or structure or really organized leaders or, or ministries. These people will say, well, all we need to do is just all fall on our faces regularly and just pray to God and everything is just going to, to happen. People will come into the church. Everything in the church will work according to plan, finances, all that stuff. It will be taken care of. And they underemphasize the need for, for any type of structure or organization. On the other side... People will overemphasize the structure of the church and underemphasize the role of the Holy Spirit. These are many of your, your mega Fortune 500 type churches that have all the systems and programs and, and all these elements in place, but a fundamental reliance upon the Holy Spirit, waiting on God, seeking Him, praying being with one another in the Word, studying the Word, believing that God still does speak to His people, a lot of that is, is missing. And what we see here is, is a great balance, a, a picture, an initial portrait, a foreshadowing of what the church ultimately is meant to look like. The right structure in a church will not hinder the work of the Holy Spirit but it will liberate the Holy Spirit to continue to, to call people to God, to minister to God's people. So we see, I will bring it up into to four points, this text. We see, number one, the reason for this type of structure. Reason, it's verses one and two. Number two, the requirements of leaders. Number three, the roster who these actual leaders are, the roster of leaders. That's verses 5 and 6. Requirements was 3 and 4. And finally, results. What were the results of this implementation of, of structure? 
Reason, requirements, roster, results. So number one, reason. Verse one, look at it. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what's in view here, this, this daily distribution, if you remember back in Acts chapter 2, when, when the church just explodes and these thousands of members are added to the church and there's this overwhelming sense of the Spirit of God stirring up the believers to love one another, to pour into one another, leads them to voluntarily give of their, of their uh, possessions, of their food, of their resources for the collective good of the church. And those goods are then redistributed back into the church to meet people's needs, whether it be uh, needs of, of food, of, of finances, of clothing. This type of distribution was happening daily. And it says here that when this was occurring daily amongst the disciples, some of the widows began to be neglected. Now what's important, the key word here is, is neglect. Because it's understood that when they say, when the text says neglect, it doesn't just mean that these women were forgotten, but rather, as one dictionary says, it says, this neglect is the type of neglect that happens as the result of making an unfavorable comparison. Meaning this was neglect that was being done on purpose. In somebody's mind, these widows were not as worthy as other widows were of these provisions. This was intentional. So something, you can imagine the scene of, of widows, wherever they were coming to meet this daily distribution, coming with their, their hands out, not having men to protect them, not having sons old enough now to protect them, needing provisions to be given them by the church to meet their needs. And someone was deliberately overlooking these elderly women, allowing them to go without their daily sustenance. What, what was happening? What, what is going on? This, it says that, that as this began to happen, a complaint arose. And this is just, just bickering, murmuring behind the scenes. It wasn't out there in the open yet, but it was clear that this tension, this fracture in, in the life of the body, this once perfectly unified body, began to come apart because of this action. Now the text doesn't say specifically what, what would have led to someone deliberately choosing to overlook these Hellenist widows, but any first century Jew, if you live at the time when this was written and you knew about the culture that, was, that existed at this time, you knew who these Hellenists were and who the Hebrews were, just even reading that Hellenists and Hebrews were involved, you would have thought to yourself, something's about to go down. Something, this, this is not right. This something, oof. So now time for a little history lesson. Everyone got their history books out, ready to study. Um, just a little bit of background. It totally just blows open what's going on in this text. How many of you have heard of Alexander the Great? Many of you, most of you. Alexander the Great, roughly like 300 years before Jesus came into the world, he was the most powerful emperor of his time. He had established the greatest empire of his time, second only to the Roman Empire later. He conquered like Egypt, Syria, Persia, Babylon, all the way east into India, all of 
the, the region of the Eastern Mediterranean Sea. All that was, was his empire. This was a Greek conqueror. And let me say, by the way, that these, these Hellenists, when it says Hellenists, what you know is that these people are just Greek-speaking Jews. These are Jews who speak Greek that are not from Israel, and the Hebrews are Jews who do not speak Greek. They speak Hebrew or Aramaic, and they live in Israel. But anyway, back to, to Alexander. This Greek conqueror, he was so in love with everything Greek. Greek language, culture, entertainment, architecture, philosophy, that he saw it as his duty to go out and conquer all of these lands, all of these nations, and disseminate Greek culture into those lands. Many people in these lands were on board. They, they loved the, the modernization of their country and, and coming up to, to speed with the rest of the world. Many other people in these nations thought that it's, just, it's too much that, that's changing. There's too much worldliness especially happening. The process began gradually in, in the nation of Israel. And it was particularly acute when one leader, one of Alexander's generals, his, one of his descendants arose and was over in power over Israel. And he took this process that was called Hellenization, the, the, the process of introducing Greek culture into the nation, he took it up to a whole new level. This man's name was Antiochus IV. And he did things like going into the temple, going into like the basement of the temple, the holiest site for Jews, and building a gymnasium. He, he forced Jewish youth to participate in the Greek games where they had to participate naked and, and compete naked. That was Greek custom. And if you can just imagine the most like conservative Baptist you've ever seen in your life, like very stiff, always shirt and tie, seven days a week, doesn't really like people, sort of cantankerous, just like that, okay? Hopefully I didn't fit anybody for that. But just like the most conservative people, just like how, if that were to happen here in Raleigh or here in the South, how those people would react. That's how many Jews, conservative Jews, were reacting during that time when they saw all these things taking place and all this worldliness entering into Jerusalem. Some other Jews, though, were right on board. These Jews were called the Hellenists. They didn't mind all of this Greek culture invading Israel. Things came to a head when this leader, he lost a, a battle and was driven back by the Romans. And he decided to vent his anger as he passed through Israel. He decided to massacre thousands of Jews. He instituted a whole bunch of, of new laws. They weren't allowed, allowed to uh, participate on their Sabbath customs. They couldn't go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. They couldn't uh, do their normal Jewish laws. They, they, all their books, their, their, their Bibles were taken and confiscated and burned. This guy went into the center of the temple and, and erected a, an idol statue to Zeus. Not to God, but to Zeus and slaughtered pigs and, and all these other unclean animals to the Jews such that this unclean blood filled the temple. This is the source of, of this Greek leader, this Greek influence, what it ultimately culminated in, in Israel. It took three years for the Jews to expel the Greeks out of Jerusalem, out of the temple. 
at the end, on, on December 25th, it's like 164 B.C., they, they consecrated the temple, they cleansed the temple, and they celebrated this, this act in the festival known as Hanukkah. You know how important Hanukkah still is to Jews to this day, and it all just goes back to this expulsion of Greek influence and everything that was Greek at the time. So now this is a background of like 300 years of animosity between those who came from the Jews who defended Greek or, or, or repelled Greek influence and, and defended their customs and fought and many of their ancestors died. And on the other side there's these Greek-speaking Jews that were called Hellenists that lived outside of Israel and only came back in to visit Jerusalem during Pentecost, during the time of, of the festival and all these Hellenists now had come, many of these Hellenists had come into Jerusalem for this particular Pentecost, and it was a Pentecost unlike any other. They heard a man stand up and began proclaiming, and, and people alongside him proclaiming in, in weird languages this gospel, this man, this Jesus Christ, and everyone whipped up into a frenzy over what this singular man had done and being compared on par with God, being declared to be God himself. And many of these Hellenists, they decided to, to stay and to hear more, and they were converted. And now there's this, this tension between these two people living alongside each other in Jerusalem, and it eventually starts to come to a head. And it's specifically because this rapid influx of people into the church and how rapidly the church is, is growing now that the apostles aren't able to themselves overlook everything that's happening in the church. They need assistance. They need leaders who can, who can deal with these issues and mend these fractures in the body that that diminish the ability for the people of God to resemble the people of God to the outside world and, and be winsome and attractive and give off the aroma of Christ because of the love that exists between them as the Word of God is being proclaimed. So this dispute arises and, and you can tell that it's, it's serious. It's handled in a serious manner. In verse 2 when it says... And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Again, when he says the full number of the disciples, this was over 5,000-something people at this time. As much as they could gather everyone around and say, Listen up, this, this issue needs to be addressed. This little bickering between people that compromises the integrity of the gospel that is uh, against what, what the Lord Jesus Christ has, has won us to, what, what He has offered to us, salvation and peace with God and with one another. All of this, they summon all of these disciples to address this one issue. And how do they handle it? They say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. In verse 4 it says, uh, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And just know that, that when he says that it's not right, he doesn't mean like it's morally wrong for us to, deserve, to, us to serve tables. 
I mean, if you just read the rest of the Gospels, you see that it's the heartbeat of the apostles and the leaders of God to care for the least of these as Jesus did, to care for those who cannot care for themselves. But what he is emphasizing is that although these needs need to be met, the Word of God is still our source of life to know the true and living God. It is the very source of this this rapid growth of the church and the, and the widespread proclamation of the gospel is all centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these men need to be devoted to this word of, of drawing up fresh water for thirsty souls to, to drink on a regular basis and dive deeper into the word of God. They need help. They need more people, more hands on deck. So that's the reason why this whole stream of events comes into play. Number two, what are the the requirements of the leaders that they they want to tackle this new endeavor? Verse three. The apostles say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Notice that there's nothing stated of professional degree or ability with finances particularly. There's, no, there's nothing mentioned of level of acumen here. This is all characteristics. This is all people who fundamentally rely on the Spirit of God. These are the type of people that all of us are called and to strive to be. These are the type of people that God wants to be in leadership to, to lead His people well. This was a serious issue. This centuries-old feud between these two groups of people that threatened to compromise the integrity of the Gospel. The apostles didn't need scholars They needed people who were willing to cry out to God, to depend on God, to wait on God, full of the Spirit and wisdom. What is those those two requirements? What does full of the Spirit mean? It basically just means that those who are so reliant upon the Spirit that everything that they do is is an act, is is done in a posture of depending on God, of of just crying out to Him, of searching His will. It's this this avid desire to know what His his will is and to do what is pleasing to the Father, not what is pleasing to men, not what will satisfy those who are deeply invested in this age-old feud, this, this cultural, linguistic, racial feud, whatever, that has consumed people for so long and is now growing in the church like a deadly weed. Men of God who depend on God are the type of people, men and women of God, that God is calling to to lead His people. Secondly, wisdom. What, what is biblical wisdom? What is that? Because it, it's, it's more than just knowledge. Like It's more than just facts. It's more than just memorizing Bible verses or, or having right theology. Wisdom, biblical wisdom, is taking all of those things, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of His Word, 
and then rightly knowing how to apply it to different situations, to, to widows who are being neglected, to people who are being abused and maligned, to fractures in the church, to, to discontent, discontentment in the church. It's how do we apply what we have in the Word of God wisely to each of these situations as they arise. The apostles needed some men who were, who were willing to step up and, and lead in this capacity. Those are the requirements. That's it. A dependence on God. Who did they find? Number five, verse five, getting into the roster now. Who, who did they find to lead and serve in this capacity? Verse 5 says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These, these seven men, it wouldn't be apparent to any of us reading the text, but, but scholars say that all of these names, all of these men, these are all Greek names. Meaning, these are all people who were born of Greek-speaking parents. These were all Hellenists. These were all people in the minority. These weren't the popular ones. This, this group wasn't the popular group. And yet it's such a testament to the clear character of these people that when the apostles call all the disciples front and center and they say, we need people who will depend upon the Spirit of God, who among you lives up to that standard? The Hellenists, these Greeks, these, one that other, these un, ones that otherwise were being maligned, these were the ones that their character could not be questioned. They so clearly lived with a devotion and passion to God that it could not be overlooked. We only know two of them in some detail. The rest of the five remain a mystery. But you may have heard of the first one, Stephen. I know uh, my wife, she loves the story of Stephen. She always talks about just his, his passion when he spoke. And we'll get to him in, in the next chapter, in chapter 7. But was Stephen a man full of the Spirit, full of wisdom? Well, it's his actions, his bold actions for the name of Christ that make him the first martyr, the first one killed for the cause of the Gospel, at least recorded in the Gospel. In the, in the Gospels. Stephen is the one who stands up in the midst of, of people who want to, to kill this whole movement, this whole emphasis on Jesus as God, as one who's come into the world and God shedding his blood for worthless sinners. It, it was unheard of. And Stephen was the one who stood boldly upon that proclamation and just declared the whole history of the Jewish people leading up to this culminating event of Jesus Christ entering the world and he did so unashamedly. That whole testimony is what ended up getting him killed. It was too much. He had taken it to a degree that was beyond what even the apostles had said and done. Just condemning these people for clearly rejecting their God, rejecting their Messiah. And they stoned and killed him for it. But it's an interesting thing to, to meditate on, the fact that 
up until this point, all of these people are congregating in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is just swelling like, like a great storm of just believers and converts. And it's all just happening in Jerusalem. But God had commanded all of his people, to his disciples, to go out and start to make disciples into Samaria and the rest of Judea and to the ends of the earth. And it was the martyrdom of Stephen... That, that caused the disciples to, to flee out, outside of Jerusalem, away from, from danger and into these neighboring countries, into Samaria, into Judea, into the rest of these neighboring areas where they began to meet people who had never heard of the name of Jesus Christ or what he had done or who this man was, who this Messiah figure was. And in hindsight, we can see that it was Stephen's bold proclamation that not only stood to condemn the actions of those who have rejected Jesus, but it was his death, his martyrdom, that God used to propel his people outwards to continue to tell people the good news of God. It's a solemn reminder of the weight of what we're dealing with here. That in the eyes of God, eternity far transcends everything in this world, even the lives of His people. He will use His people, yes, filling them with joy and, and, and never leaving them until the end of the age, but He will use whatever means necessary to bring people to Himself, such that at the end of human history, on the last day, there will be many, many worshiping at the throne of the Lamb. something to ponder and meditate on. Stephen is a great example of what all leaders ought to be. And what about Philip? Philip is the one that sort of takes the, the torch that, that Stephen ignites when he gives his great sermon, one of the longest sermons recorded in the Bible because of its greatness and its, its weight and its, how much it, it sends people out into the nations. Philip is the one that sort of takes that torch and he's the first recorded evangelist who actually goes into the nations and goes to Samaria and begins to share the gospel with the people there. He's even so emboldened that he approaches this this eunuch who's like the treasurer of one of the richest queens of that day. There's a chariot carrying, this, this royal chariot carrying this eunuch and all of his men traveling down the road and the Holy Spirit goes up and tells Philip to run up to the chariot and go tell that man the gospel. That's like the Holy Spirit coming to you and telling you to go run over to that stretch limo over there where that accountant of the top CEO of whatever business in Raleigh is and go share with him the gospel. Go talk about, tell him of his need for Jesus. And the text says that Philip, he doesn't waste any time. He runs, compelled by the Holy Spirit, he runs to go tell this man the gospel. He's so unafraid of, of men and the opinions of men. He's only consumed with listening to the word of God, listening to the spirit of God. When God says move, he says, yes, Lord, I'll move. These are the type of men that, that we see are, are called forth to serve in this capacity as leaders in a church. And yet it also, we also can glean much on just meditating on these, these names that we don't know. 
these other five figures. We don't know much, anything about them. The, we only know of the last one, Nicolaus. He was a proselyte, it says. That just means that he was a Greek that became a Jew even before he became a Christian. But his, his background, we don't know anything about them. But it's amazing to think that these were the men that at that time, they're not recorded by history as having done anything great, but they served in the capacity that God had called them to serve. And it's because of their work, their service in the church, that God continued to, to increase the church. They were pivotal at that time in that small, subtle, unpopular, unfamous way. They did what God had called them to do, and God accomplished His will through them. God is not calling big names. He's not calling big professionals. He's calling men who fundamentally rely upon the Lord and will do according to His will. These are the people that, that are raised up to answer this, this growing problem of this rapidly growing church and, and the need for more and more leaders to step in and to shepherd and to lead the people of God. And what's the result? What's the result of the implementation of these new leaders, these new figures into the life and the leadership of the church? Verse 7. It says, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Now the way, the way that that verse is, is worded, you can tell that it's, it's mirroring what happened back at the end of chapter 2 that we said before. At the end of chapter 2, after this, this proclamation of Peter, all these disciples are now under the clear teaching of the apostles. The apostles have the, the, the capability and the, the time to adequately teach the people of God such that they were hearing anew from the word of God, diving into his word. They were under the apostles' teaching. And the people of God were so unified that they were giving of what they had to one another. They were loving one another well, daily with one another in the temple, daily with one another in their homes. And that combined witness of of the unified body and the proclamation of the word is what caused many, many, many more people to come to know the Lord. They could not deny the evidence of the display of God's people in contrast with the world around them. The love of God's people, the power of God's gospel, many more were added. And so as a result of this, this growing population and the introduction of this this, this structure, these new leaders who took on new roles to continue to help the, the, the body to work in unity, to mend these fractures, these tears in the life of the body. The integrity of the church was restored, and the word continued to increase. We're left at the end of this verse with a foreshadowing on the events that are to come. In that, this is the first mention of any priests coming to believe in Jesus Christ. It says, And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's amazing. Because many of these priests were the same ones who were condemning Jesus to die only months before. 
They were the ones standing up, calling out for the crucifixion of the Lord of glory, for His blood to be spilt, for Him to be done away with, for all of those who were in cahoots with this, this criminal to be put away as well. Some scholars say that as little as 2,000 priests may have been in Jerusalem at this time because many of these priests, they, just, they traveled into Jerusalem for two weeks at a time to carry out their duties, their ceremonies, whatever, and they would leave, go back home. But during this time of Pentecost, there was a massive influx of priests all carrying out their rituals and whatever they had to do in the temple with all of these visitors coming in, sitting in Jerusalem. As little as 2,000 priests were there. Some say as many as eighteen to 20,000. So for there to be many priests becoming obedient to the faith, this was just an added emphasis of the Holy Spirit. That once this issue was resolved, even those in the highest positions of authority in the church were bowing the knee to Jesus. These men were coming to know the Lord And they could not deny any longer the power of the gospel. The power of God. As a result that some of these, some of the leaders who refused to to listen to the Lord and to listen to the gospel, you can tell why they got even more and more agitated and aggravated and knew something had to be done to stop this rebellion. It started with the martyrdom of Stephen. What we see here in this story is just a wonderful example. These are not official elders and deacons in this text. They're not labeled as elders, not labeled as deacons. But what we do have is a little picture of what ultimately became the two officially recognized offices in the church. We can go to the rest of Scripture to hear Paul especially talk about elders and deacons. That's those who are specifically set aside to minister to the Word, to dive into the Word, understanding that the greatest need the people of God had is to hear anew from God every day, weekly, to learn what is it that God requires of me. Who is this God that I serve that has called me out of darkness? Who is this God? Elders are primarily those who are set aside to dive into the Word and to dive into prayer and to call God down from on high to minister to His people. And there are also deacons in the church who are just as qualified, just as godly, but their primary purpose is to minister to the needs of the body, to continue to, to cultivate the life of the body, the unity of the body. We see all those elements here. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this last verse, just on the last verse, just after everything has happened in verses 1 through 6, the fact that the Word of God continued to increase. He preaches an entire sermon on just the centrality of that Word that continued to increase once these structures were in place of the gospel, of the word of God, Charles Spurgeon said this, and we'll close. He said, This, this gospel, must be the hammer that we bring down upon the anvil of the human heart again and again and again. 
God forbid that we should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. God forbid that we should know anything among men save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Look to Him, not to the pastor or the deacon or the elder, not to your good works, not to your prayers. Not to your church goings, your church attendance, or your chapel goings, but to Christ, Jesus exalted. Look to Him in faith, and God is willing to forgive you, able to forgive you, to receive you, to make you His children, and forever to glorify you with Himself. Let's pray. Father, there's so much in Your Word that we do not know. We thank You for this this treasure that You have entrusted to us to study, to learn, to commune with the living God. It's amazing that an infinite God of the universe would choose a book to relate himself to the narrow minds of simple people, but to flood their hearts with an abundance of infinite joy. I thank you, Lord, for this small picture that we have, this practical picture that we have of how a body of people who have been called by the name of Jesus Christ ought to be organized and ought to be thinking such that the Holy Spirit, the centrality of your need to move is central. There is no question who is ultimately building His church. It is Jesus Christ. It is not the programs of men. It is not eloquent speakers or professionals or anything of that sort, Lord. It is ultimately the Holy Spirit, and you delight to give your people the kingdom when they seek you aright. But Lord, you also teach us how to be practical and how to organize ourselves as the need arises such that nobody is forgotten, no one is left unaccounted for, that situations such like, this, such like these when widows were neglected and abandoned and they heard the truth of the gospel but did not see the power thereof Lord I pray that you would make us a people who desire to see your name glorified and desire to, to see it glorified in the way that you have ordained pray that you would raise up even more leaders here in TCC and elders and deacons and those who are full of the Spirit of God, who cry out to you, who meet with you alone, who desire to share the good news of Christ with those around them being so controlled and compelled and enraptured by your glory. Please do this for the sake of your glory, for your own name. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.